Welcome to the Science Ramble, where each month we look at a part of the human experience and how it links to a recently published advance in the natural sciences. My name is Simon Lichtinger, and today we talk about RNA, its various functions, and the origins of life. In human language, it seems to be rather common that philosophical questions adopt some universal, almost metaphorical level of commonplace importance. Or perhaps they also become more philosophically interesting, as many of us share them. One of those dilemmas, that of the chicken and the egg, is presented as a table conversation already by the ancient Greek philosopher Plutarch. On the issue of which was first, the bird or the egg, he writes in his Symposiacs, It is universally true that a principle is before that whose principle it is. Now the seed is a principle, and the egg is somewhat more than the seed, and less than the bird. For as a disposition, a progress in goodness, is something between a tractable mind and a habit of virtue, so an egg is, as it were, a progress of nature, tending from the seed to a perfect animal. From a nitpicky standpoint, inspired by modern science, and assuming that we're talking specifically about the chicken and its eggs, there may be an answer to this dilemma. Chickens evolved, and we need to draw some sort of line by necessity, where a bird, which is not a chicken, would have laid an egg from which a chicken hatched. But because the change would have happened on creation of the new genetic material during sexual reproduction, this means that the egg is already a chicken egg, so the egg is first. However, as Plutarch already noted, this isn't just about chicken and eggs. This is, in his words, about the great and weighty truth, the opinion that the world has a beginning. And this is where it also gets interesting from a scientific point of view. If we ask the chicken and egg question enough, we'll inevitably end up asking about the origin of life itself. Life is not only an incredibly complex system, but it operates on many layers of complexity. The human body may be composed of something like 40 trillion cells, working tightly together to enable us to go about our daily business. But even single cells, be it as part of a larger organism, or as an organism in its own right, are complex in ways we don't yet fully understand. In order to be classified as alive, cells need to convert energy of some form, taken for instance from the sun in photosynthesis, or from the chemical environment as nutrients. They need to use this energy to maintain their integrity and reproduce in a way which allows for adaptation to changing conditions for evolution. If we look at a cell through a simple microscope, it might look rather empty. This, however, is as deceptive as could be. In fact, cells are very densely packed with small molecules, as well as different types of macromolecules, working together to deliver the cell's function. The macromolecules consist of thousands of atoms bonded together chemically, usually as a polymer, built of a sequence of repeating small units of tens of atoms. For the discussion on the origins of life, three classes will be especially important. Proteins, RNA and DNA. Proteins are built up as chains of a repertoire of about 20 amino acids. These building blocks have very different chemical properties. When arranged on a chain and folded into a three-dimensional structure, they can form tiny machines capable of making many kinds of chemical reactions happen, which wouldn't if left to their own devices. This is called catalysis, and without it, life would not be possible. DNA, on the other hand, is made up of only four main building blocks, the nucleotides. The chains of nucleotides are normally wound up in a coil called the double helix, but can be unwound if necessary. 
The canonical function of DNA is information storage. It contains instructions about which protein sequences should be made, and it passes this information on from one generation to the next. The third macromolecule, RNA, is a bit of an odd one out. In terms of its chemical structure, it's very similar to DNA. Among a few subtle differences, the most important is that it carries an extra reactive chemical group. This makes RNA less stable than DNA, so apart from some viruses, information is not normally stored as RNA in the long term. On the other hand, RNA adopts more diverse three-dimensional shapes, which, together with the reactive group, allows it to perform some of the functions which proteins normally would. For the most part, RNA is therefore used as a bridge of sorts. One type of RNA, the so-called messenger RNA, encodes a temporary copy of DNA, which is then used to make proteins with the help of adapters. These adapters are themselves made of RNA, called transfer RNA, and bind messenger RNA on one side and amino acid building blocks for proteins on the other. The protein is then assembled by a ribosome. These are large complexes of proteins and yet another type of RNA, and they catalyze the formation of proteins from the amino acids. Thinking about the origins of life, the system of protein, DNA and RNA presents us with a new kind of chicken and egg problem, a threefold one in this case. In life as we know it today, they form a tightly coupled system. None could propagate without the other two. Now, which is first? The proteins, the DNA or the RNA? We do not know the answer to that question for certain. However, many scientists, since as early as the 1960s, think that we might find the most plausible explanation for RNA. The idea that some 4 billion years ago, RNA molecules were replicating themselves as an early stage of life is now widely known as the RNA world hypothesis. As the word hypothesis implies, there is no direct evidence for this. There are, however, a few reasons for why it is appealing to think of RNA as the most likely candidate for the origin of life. Even if not as stable as DNA, RNA can store information and pass it on via the mechanism of base pairing. This means that a copy of an RNA can be made using a known chemical principle, which is universal across life. Proteins, on the other hand, do not have a known way of passing on their own sequence, and so it's unlikely that one existed back then but completely vanished since. In addition to this, as I've mentioned before, RNA can also become active itself by performing catalysis for some chemical reactions. These RNAs are called ribozymes, a mashup between the words ribose, a chemical component of RNA, and enzyme, the name for protein which performs catalysis. In fact, within the ribosome, it is the RNA part, not the protein, which is responsible for the actual joining of amino acids into a new protein. It seems from all of this that RNA could have existed on its own before being joined by proteins and DNA to assemble life as we know it today. The strange role RNA seems to play in life now could, in essence, be a kind of fossil of a time when only RNA existed. With all of its elegance, there are some very fundamental challenges to the RNA world hypothesis. To start with, the building blocks of RNA, the nucleotides, are not trivial at all to make. In modern life, it's the proteins which catalyze their formation. If we want to imagine an RNA-only precursor to life though, we'd need to show that they can form spontaneously, just from chemicals floating around in the waters of ancient Earth. There has been some research into this question, 
But so far, the only partial answers which scientists have found involve a carefully timed order of delivery of the reacting chemicals. Another issue is that catalysis by RNA seems to be rather rare, and that the RNA molecules which do it tend to be quite long. Nowadays, proteins catalyze the copying of RNA, but in an RNA world, this would need to be done by RNA itself. We do not know of any RNA which can copy another RNA of its own length, but it's probably reasonable to assume that this copying machine would involve at least a few dozen nucleotides to work. This throws us back to square zero of the chicken and egg problem in a way, because it's not clear how that first copying machine could have arisen spontaneously. There are some ideas involving systems of shorter RNAs, which may work together to copy each other. Again, however, there's little direct evidence for how exactly this might have worked. A few other problems include the stability of RNA, what energy sources there might have been for all of this, or the fact that a functional copying system could become overwhelmed by useless, parasitic RNAs, which hijack the copying machine. While yet again some thoughts on these have been put forward, it's fair to say that we cannot at this point formulate a fully consistent RNA world hypothesis. It's clear though that research on what RNA is up to in life today could be fruitful not only for understanding life's modern workings, but also for understanding its origins. Fortunately, because of its relevance to disease and potential in biotechnology, RNA biology has received much research funding in recent years. Accordingly, progress is being made fast. A recent example of this was published in the journal Nature Chemical Biology in a paper entitled Hoflink is a recently evolved class of ribozyme found in human long non-coding RNA. Before we go into the details of this study, I should say that Hovlink is just the name the authors gave to the RNA motif they found. Scientists love acronyms, and so it comes from Hominin Very Long Intergenic Non-Coding RNA. I'll explain later what exactly those words mean. The background to this piece of research is that ribozymes, RNA molecules with catalytic function, are quite common, say in bacteria, but not so much in humans. However, given how much genetic information we carry around with us in our genomes, it's also not an easy task to find those ribozymes, even if they do exist. In the first part of their paper, the scientists develop a method to look for ribozymes in the human genome. They focus on one particular class, the self-cleaving ribozymes. In essence, once the RNA of this type is produced, it cuts itself in a defined position. It may seem a bit counterintuitive what the advantage would be for an RNA to cut itself. There are, however, a few known functions of this. For example, replication of circular viral chromosomes, where the RNA is copied many times continuously around the circle, but then cleaves itself into individual copies. In higher organisms, self-cleaving ribozymes may, for example, be implicated in a particular type of leftover virus called a retrotransposon. Perhaps because there aren't so many functions for these ribozymes in humans, there were only four of those known to exist within our genome, the assembly of all genetic instructions we have. What the researchers did in order to find more was first to construct a library containing the genome chopped up into small snippets. Our genome is made of DNA, so the snippets need to be transcribed into the corresponding RNAs. This process of transcription normally leaves a phosphate chemical group hanging at the end of the produced RNA. If, however, the RNA then cleaves itself, there will be no phosphate at the new end. 
The trick the scientists now employed was to specifically destroy all the RNAs which do have a phosphate attached to them, using a non-biochemical tool. This should only leave those RNAs intact which corresponded to a self-cleaving ribozyme. We can find out when the genome those came from by finding the sequences of these leftover RNAs. In practice, all of this isn't perfect, and what the researchers found was more like an enrichment of some RNAs without the phosphate. Nevertheless, one of the RNA snippets they found corresponded to one of the known human ribozymes, so they have some control with regards to sensitivity. All the other snippets they found were now tested individually to confirm whether they actually work. And at the end of this, the authors had found one new functional ribozyme. The location of this ribozyme in the genome is a slightly unusual one. As I've mentioned before, it comes in a very long intergenic non-coding RNA. Normally, RNAs act as the bridge between DNA and proteins, either by coding for proteins or being involved in the synthesis of proteins somehow. These long non-coding RNAs in question, on the other hand, don't seem to contribute to this process, and it's not really known what they do. Finding a ribozyme in one of them is interesting, because it opens up the possibility that the ribozyme may somehow contribute to the function of the RNA. Aside from what the new ribozyme does in humans, another question of substantial interest is its evolutionary history, that is, how recently it evolved, and in which species. Nowadays, significant proportions of genomes from any species are sequenced, and so it's possible to compare which species carry the ribozyme sequence in question. Because we have some idea as to when species present today diverged in evolution, this sort of comparison allows an upper estimate to how old a certain genetic sequence is. In the case of the Hofling ribozyme, only some mammals carry similar sequences, placing an upper limit of about 130 million years to its age. However, not all similar sequences are active. By trying out some of the variants from other mammals in the lab, the researchers could conclude that the ribozyme only became active 10 to 13 million years ago, in higher primates. This is striking, because it means that catalysis by RNA is not exclusively some relic of the RNA world, but could still be a viable solution to evolution's challenges in modern times. The rest of the paper is mainly concerned with finding out more about the properties of this ribozyme, as well as getting an idea of what the three-dimensional structure might be, and which parts of it carry the function. The first aim is mainly accomplished by just testing the activity in different sets of conditions. For example, as for other ribozymes as well, metal ions are important for function. On the other hand, the preferred choice of metal ion is rather different from those ribozymes which are otherwise most similar. This leads the scientists to conclude that they have found a new class of self-cleaving ribozyme. It is however not yet known how the molecular mechanism might be different to explain these metal preferences. The latter aim, to find out more about the three-dimensional structure, is achieved in a two-step approach. First, a computer program gives an initial guess at what it might look like, just from the sequence. The researchers then follow up by changing some nucleotides in the sequence, in a way which might disrupt the structure. If the activity decreases following the change, that's an indication that this part of the structure is important, in some cases, this can be confirmed by a compensation mutation. By changing a nucleotide and its proposed binding partner in an appropriate way, the activity might be unaffected, 
providing an indication that these particular nucleotides actually interact. The details of this are a bit fiddly, but in the end, they do manage to find a plausible structure. Obviously, this would need to be further tested by more direct methods of structure determination in the future. Finally, the authors also perform some tests in cells to show that the ribozyme isn't just active in the test tube. This sort of in vivo validation is always an important part of biochemistry research. Taking it all together, much remains to be studied about this new ribozyme. No matter of how important it actually turns out to be for humans though, this also has potential to be used as a tool, given that the ribozyme is at the very least compatible with functioning inside human cells. More broadly speaking, this research highlights once again the special role played by RNA in life, somewhere between code and function. Whether RNA is actually how life started is something we may never know. Partially, this is because of the very limited evidence surviving to us through those 4 billion years. Probably the best source we have to tell us about the early stages of life is the sort of comparison between species, which the scientists in the Hovling study have used to estimate the sequence's age. The more distantly related species we consider in the comparison, the further back we're looking in evolutionary history. The ribosome, for example, that machine linking RNA and proteins, is incredibly ancient, because variants of it exist across all life. In fact, some people think that it might have originated as a way to copy RNA instead of making proteins. With all the information we can obtain from it, there is however a very fundamental limitation to this approach for looking backwards in time. We can only ever look back to the point when DNA started coding for both RNAs and proteins. What happened before, in either an RNA-only world, or some mixture between RNA and proteins, is obscured behind that veil. All we can do is learn more about the things RNA is capable of today, and try to find plausible answers to some of the problems our hypotheses face. Maybe someday, we find a model which is more plausible than the RNA world, but that will have the same issues of lacking direct evidence. Still, with all the uncertainty over what exactly happened back then, we always have the weak anthropic principle for comfort. It did happen, and with the result of it. If it hadn't, we wouldn't be here to observe that alternative scenario. The existence of life on this planet is by itself a compelling piece of evidence to be taken into account, and so perhaps it isn't that bad if plausibility is the only thing within our reach for this one. Thanks for listening to The Science Ramble. The show releases on the first of every month, so join in again next time for some brand new science.